Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning cup of murder. While life insurance policies are a necessary part of life and death, they seem to bring with them a temptation some cannot seem to ignore. On May 6, 1958, a woman was arrested after not one, not two, but four people in her family died. A woman who stood to make a lot of money with each death. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Anjette Donovan, born August 23, 1935 in Macon, Georgia, was known for her beauty and charm. There was very little she couldn't get people to do or give her, and in 1947, she married a man named Ben F. Lyles Jr., who owned a well-known Macon restaurant that had been passed down to him by his father. Anjette and Ben worked at the restaurant together, while simultaneously raising their two daughters, and Anjette excelled at customer care. Unfortunately, despite the restaurant's success, Ben's health took a hit and he was forced to sell. A move he made without counseling Anjette, who was understandably furious with her ailing husband. As his health worsened, doctors were left scratching their head trying to find its cause. But before they could nail anything down, on July 23, 1952, Ben Lyles died from, according to his death certificate, encephalitis. Anjette, who was now an unemployed widow, had to take on all of the responsibility of her children and her home. So she found work in another local restaurant, saved all the money she could, and learned how to successfully run her own establishment. Anjette's, a new southern eatery, was opened in April of 1955, and Anjette found herself once again at the center of her customers' attention. People loved eating at Anjette's. The food was good and her charming company was even better. It soon became a hot spot for the typical clientele as well as businessmen, judges, attorneys, and civic leaders alike. But not everyone found Anjette so charmingly perfect. A number of people commented on her personality, claiming she stretched the boundaries of what was considered acceptable behavior in their southern town. She drove expensive cars, dressed in all the new styles, and her flirtiness got her into hot water a time or two. 
linking her with a long list of men in the community, though there was never any proof of her liaisons. By late spring of 1955, she became official with a pilot for Capital Airways named Joe Neal Gabbert, and on a trip to Texas and New Mexico, surprised all of her friends and family when she returned married. Joe moved into Anjette's home, but only four months later, was transported to the Parkview Hospital. Initially, it was just for a simple surgery on his wrist. But the next day, a painful skin rash appeared all over his entire body, and his fever spiked. The doctors were left baffled, and as they tried to determine the sudden cause of his illness, Joe Gabbert was transferred to a hospital in Dublin, Georgia, where he suddenly died on December 2nd, 1955. Two husbands had tragically and suddenly died shortly after their marriages with Anjette began. But while many in her situation would wallow in their misfortune, Anjette cashed in the life insurance policy, bought a new car, a new house, and according to the gossip, started dating again, even being linked with another pilot for Capital Airways. Soon after moving into her new home, Julia Lyles, her mother-in-law, from her first marriage, moved in so she could be closer to her grandchildren and help Anjette with the restaurant. While going through some of Julia's possessions, Anjette noticed a bank book that revealed Julia's considerable wealth. She had no idea her mother-in-law had such possessions and tried to eagerly convince her to write up a will, just in case. She refused to do so, fearing it brought bad luck to consider her death. Julia, like Anjette, was a superstitious woman. In fact, Anjette was known by many to frequent fortune tellers and root doctors, cast her own spells, and hold voodoo ceremonies with her maid and mother-in-law. Unfortunately for Julia Lyles, no amount of magic could save her from the mysterious illness that struck her in August of 1957. Anjette lovingly cared for her mother-in-law for a month, bringing the nauseous woman her favorite food, and distributing medicine as it was prescribed. But like the men before her, doctors could do nothing to isolate the cause of her illness. She died on September 29, 1957, and Anjette buried Julia next to her late husband and son. Barely a week later, Anjette produced a piece of paper she claimed was her mother-in-law's will, a paper that left everything to Anjette and her daughters. Then, in late winter of 1958, her own nine-year-old daughter, Marcia, started to show symptoms of the same illness that killed the others. For the locals in Macon, this was the final straw. That same year, authorities received an anonymous letter claiming that the writer believed Marcia Lyles was being poisoned at home. Unfortunately, while the police decided they were going to investigate the Lyles' home, they were too late to save Marcia's life. They were not too late, though, to get an immediate autopsy. Because of this, they were able to find lethal doses of arsenic in Marcia's system. When they questioned Anjette about this, she simply said that Marcia had accidentally ingested the poison while playing a game of make-believe doctor and nurse. They weren't buying it, especially after a background investigation turned up the deaths of three other members of Anjette's family, who, upon exhumation, all tested positive for arsenic. This, along with the several boxes of ant poison and voodoo paraphernalia, was enough to earn Anjette her arrest on May 6, 1958. 
1958. She was charged with four counts of murder, and the case immediately caused a media frenzy. At the center of this deadly story was a beautiful and relatively well-loved member of the community. So crowds of hundreds stood outside the courtroom trying to get a glimpse of the deadly woman, while the newspaper headlines referred to her as the glamorous, platinum-haired widow. It was the most publicized and talked about criminal trial in Macon in the 20th century. In the end, Anjette only stood trial for the murder of her young daughter, but the prosecution was permitted to present evidence of the other three deaths, stating the evidence of their murder was circumstantial but did show a connection that was too compelling to ignore. Probably most damning were the witness statements that came from those who worked in Anjette's restaurant. They claimed that she responded to her daughter by screaming at her, calling her horrific names and threatening her. That she would take food to the family members who sat ill in the hospital, and when Marcia was in her hospital bed suffering from hallucination-induced terrors, Anjette simply stood by and did nothing to comfort her dying child, even laughing at some of her reactions. They also added that just two weeks before Marcia died, the doctors told Anjette that they thought her daughter might actually recover from her illness. Anjette responded by purchasing the nine-year-old a coffin and discarding her personal effects, saying, well, she won't be using these anymore as she packed up her things. As Anjette sat quietly and coldly in the courtroom, denying she had anything to do with the deaths, the jury deliberated for just an hour and a half before coming back with a verdict of guilty. She sat stone-faced as she was sentenced to death and spectators wept for her dead child. Her sentence was affirmed by the Georgia Supreme Court on July 8, 1959. However, while Anjette would have been the first white woman to be executed in Georgia, a number of politicians took issue with sending a woman to the gallows. So Governor Ernest Vandiver appointed a sanity commission to see if Anjette's sentence could be overturned. And at the end of their observations, the board found her criminally insane, therefore commuting her death sentence and sending her to the state hospital for the insane. She lived in the hospital for the rest of her life before dying of heart failure at the age of 52 on December 4th, 1977. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 7th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.